0: The Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging presents The Art of Aging, information and tips on how to experience life more abundantly as we age. Our hosts are John King and Rev. Beth Long Higgins, Executive Director of the Ruth Frost Parker Center in Marion, Ohio, an initiative of the United Church Homes.
1: Hi Beth. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Stacy Levine about the field of palliative medicine. John, today's topic, palliative care, is so important. It's a philosophy of medicine that treats individuals with serious illness by an interdisciplinary team. They are not so much concerned about curing the illness as they are improving the quality of life. I'm really excited to hear what Dr. Levine has to share with us today. Dr. Levine founded the program at the University of Chicago Medical Center and is a leader in the palliative medical field. Let's hear about how important palliative care is for people with a serious illness. You did your residency at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York back in the 90s.
0: I was an internal medicine resident, and then I stayed for a year of geriatrics training. And at that time, palliative medicine was just starting to really become a thing. And uh, I had a lot of experience with it, with the mentors I had there at Mount Sinai, and was able to take care of patients of all ages, older adults in particular, but really to have a good frontline view of what people face in serious illness, particularly in the hospitalized setting.
1: Is palliative care only for older people?
0: Palliative medicine is a discipline of medicine that cares for people of all ages. You know, there's pediatric palliative care now. Which really wasn't widely available when I was a, a resident and student back in the 90s, but certainly now it's becoming more popular. But yes, palliative medicine is something that is offered to people at all ages, all stages of disease, at a point where they need some extra support, an extra, we call it an extra layer of support to help people get through their acute illness.
1: What are the aspects of palliative care?
0: So, palliative medicine is an interdisciplinary group of people, we call it a team that monitors patients and cares for them in various care settings. So palliative medicine, when it works well, is offered in a hospital. That's where palliative medicine really was born, is in the inpatient setting. But we also, when we have a well-developed program, we see it in clinics. Here at University of Chicago, our palliative medicine program it is embedded within oncology. So we have a palliative medicine specialist who works side-by-side with the oncologist. So when the patient comes in and has their oncology appointment, The palliative care specialist will sit with them and ask them, are you having any pain? Do you have any nausea? They'll do some advanced care planning. They'll really just overall check and see how the patient is doing because even when patients are getting aggressive cancer therapies, they still have needs.
1: You're trying to reduce not just pain, but what are some of the other things that help?
0: Very commonly, a lot of physical symptoms, right? So nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath, constipation, skin issues. I mean, you think about any symptoms somebody may have when they're facing a serious illness. And then on top of that, there's a lot of psychosocial needs. There's financial needs, emotional needs, family needs, families need a lot of support. And, you know, palliative medicine is really the umbrella that cares for people in all different facets of care.
1: Did palliative care start with the hospice movement?
0: Yeah, so the hospice movement started, I think, about in about 1982 when Medicare recognized that hospice should be through payment. You know, patients that are facing the end of their illness should have an option for them to explore comprehensive care near the end of their life. And then we realized that we shouldn't wait till somebody is dying to offer them the support services that they need. In fact, when patients are diagnosed with a serious illness, I would say palliative medicine should start at day one. They may not have symptoms at the time. They may not be prepared or ready to talk about their advanced directives. Yet having support, you know, when you have a a really serious diagnosis is critical. And then having palliative medicine available throughout a patient's care journey, and they can be more involved at certain points in time, right? Somebody gets admitted to the hospital, and they're having a lot of symptoms or side effects from their cancer treatments, let's say. Then a palliative medicine person can come in and support them and get them through that until they're discharged and go back home again. So it's a very fluid process when it works well.
1: Has the opioid crisis impacted palliative care?
0: So the opioid crisis has really been enormous here. In Chicago, the number of deaths last year from opioid overdoses was over 1,000 people have died from overdoses. That's a combination of both the drugs that we see on the street, like heroin, but also prescription drugs. And in palliative medicine, over time, because of the crisis, there's been a lot more restrictions in the availability of opioids to treat pain. In particular, our cancer patients oftentimes have been experiencing issues where their insurance companies will give them only a limited supply or they won't prescribe something over a certain amount per day because of this concern. I, I've had a pharmacist once question my prescription for a, an opioid, and I you know had to call her and have a conversation about why this patient was on this medication and, and what for. And I really appreciate the oversight, but it does pose challenges for many of us in palliative care. When our patients are coming in, they absolutely need opioids because there's nothing else that works for them, and we're facing a lot of restrictions.
1: Is there a resistance to giving opioids to dementia patients?
0: People with dementia are at risk for delirium. Delirium is an acute confusional state that is very, very common, particularly in the hospital setting. Many of your listeners may know somebody who, when they were hospitalized, you know, Uncle Joe was picking at his sheets, trying to crawl out of bed, pulling out his IVs, was not talking well, was very confused. That's delirium. And delirium is precipitated by a variety of different things within the hospital. It could be precipitated by being simply dehydrated, by having an infection. And in some cases, medications can trigger delirium. So an opioid is an example of something that could possibly trigger delirium. The counter argument to that is that if somebody has uncontrolled pain, they can get delirious as well. So it's a very delicate balance. And when somebody has a brain of someone, let's say with Alzheimer's, that's not functioning completely, you worry about adding a drug or something that's going to possibly put somebody into a delirium. And that's why people may hold back and not give opiates to somebody who has an underlying diagnosis of dementia. And sometimes with dementia, it's hard to even understand where their pain's coming from. If they can't self-report, you're sort of playing a little bit of a guessing game or relying on caregivers or relying on What the patient looks like when you're moving them around in bed? Do you elicit pain? Sometimes putting someone on scheduled Tylenol can make a huge amount of difference or repositioning the patient. However, in some cases, let's say I have an older adult who fell and broke their hip and they're having a lot of pain from this fracture. They had surgery, let's say, and they need a little bit of an opiate. Well, we always pick the lowest dose we can, identify the safest, shortest-acting medication we can. And we give them a, a, a dose. And, you know, our mantra in geriatrics is start low, go slow when you increase, but go. You don't not treat somebody's pain just because you're worried about precipitating a delirium or constipation or some other adverse event. You know, we can't rehab people who've had a hip fracture if they are not in significant pain. So you've got to really find that balance.
1: Do you consider pain a medical emergency?
0: There's acute pain and there's chronic pain. Both of them are serious. Acute pain, when it happens, it leads to readmissions in the hospital, leads to a long length of stay. It leads to a lot of social distress, emotional distress. You know, we don't want patients to get to a point where they're in so much distress from physical pain or other sorts of pain that they have nowhere to go. I mean, that's the whole point is to prevent things from happening. So, yes, acute pain is a very serious issue.
1: Do you use the pain scale?
0: Not just asking about the pain scale. People try to put a number to their pain. I find a lot of my patients have a hard time. You know, is your pain at 10? Is it a 9? Is it a 15? Is it a 50? What I really want to know is how significant is this pain interfering with your quality of life? What is it that you can't do right now because of pain that you want to be doing? And we talk about it in terms of what matters to the patient. Not what is the matter with you, but what matters to you, right? And I I use that all the time in, in all my care settings. What matters to you today? How can I help you today to make you feel better, to make your day go better? What's on your mind? And that can generate a lot of ideas, but we don't do enough of that in the hospital, Asking patients what matters to them. And if we can't align with the patients, it does impact things like length of stay, healthcare decisions, conversations with families. So when my patients say, Well, I really want to be able to sit with my grandchildren for more than 30 minutes. I want to be able to get up and make my bed in the morning. I want to be able to stand there and do the dishes. I want to be able to take a shower by myself. Like that actually is a more, more important goal for me than putting a number to something. And that's what we use. So when I do prescribe medication or use other modalities to treat pain, we try to focus on how do we get you more functional. So I don't just prescribe opiates. I think opiates are a very important part of people's pain regimen, especially for very severe pain. We do a lot of other things. We refer people for acupuncture, massage, physical therapy. In fact, I love to use non-opioid regimens for pain, because it helps reduce the amount of opioid, or some patients don't need opioids at all. We do try to really conserve the opioids that we prescribe, not just because of the opioid crisis, but because there are really good effective therapies that people haven't tried yet, topical therapies. So, you know, in, in palliative medicine, our armamentarium of treatment is, is pretty expansive, and that's why it's interdisciplinary.
1: What about breathing?
0: So mindfulness. Somebody like me who's had troubles with sleeping, a little anxiety with the pandemic, I've turned to mindfulness to help me cope. And I think we're going to be seeing more of it over time because people are looking for ways to treat their anxiety, depression, their pain, and not just take a bunch of medications. And I I really feel it's very effective. It's just that a lot of people aren't clear what it is have never tried it before, but there's a lot of really simple techniques that people can learn that could be under five minutes. Breathing exercises, reflection, writing down three good things that happened today. There's ways to do this, and it's evidence-based.
1: I understand that Mass General in Boston did a study that indicated palliative care can extend life. Can you tell me about that?
0: Yeah, so this study was evaluating the impact of palliative care on outpatients, people with advanced lung cancer therapies. And their intervention was the patient would, in the intervention arm, would have consultation with a palliative medicine expert. Those that were part of the control arm did not have a palliative care consult working with them. And so what they wanted to find out is what was the benefit of palliative care for this patient population. We know they're high risk. They have advanced disease. They probably have a lot of symptoms, need social support. And what they found was that patients' quality of life significantly improved if they had palliative care involved. What they didn't know until the end of the study was that people who had had palliative care actually lived a little bit longer, somewhere around 11 weeks longer than those that did not have palliative care. That was a surprise to the investigators. That was not their intended consequence. And They've thought long and hard about what that really truly means. I wouldn't say that we would expand that to every cancer person and say, you're going to live longer if you have palliative care. I think that that's not something that we can promise people. However, from my own anecdotal experience, when my patients do use palliative medicine earlier in their disease course, if they enroll in hospice earlier, when they need to, that people actually tend to in general do a lot better and and live a little bit longer with good care. If you can imagine, if you spend your days fighting your symptoms, fighting your emotional distress, you don't feel like you have support from your medical team, then things can happen like hospital readmissions, ICU stays, and other adverse outcomes related to those that possibly could have more morbidity associated with it. Being in physical pain can be very draining. somebody. It takes a lot of calories, a lot of energy to be short of breath, to lie in bed, to feel like you don't want to do anything, you don't want to eat, you lose weight. I mean just think about the cascade of things that happen when people don't feel well.
1: Tell me about how palliative care improves the family's life.
0: I think it's big. When I walk into a room, it's not just the patient in the room, it's who else is sitting in the room. I scan the room, I see who's there, I introduce myself, I ask the patient to introduce me to who's in the room and I let them know that I'm, I'm here to take care of everybody in the room. The serious illness affecting the patient doesn't just affect the patient. It affects the entire family unit or caregivers, whoever's involved with the patient. And by simply saying that, I think a lot of people feel relief because we're not used to, in medicine, having that someone say that to us. It's usually the, the doctor comes in the room. They're focused only on the patient and not really thinking about what that means for the rest of the people there. But these people have to go home and help take care of their loved one if they're really seriously ill, right? They're the caregivers, and mind you, I will say, there's a lot of unpaid caregiving going on in this society. I have patients' family members who are quitting their jobs to take care of their loved one, and they're stressed and burdened, and they feel guilty. So simply saying as a palliative medicine clinician, I'm here to help support you in any way that I can, makes a huge difference.
1: What are the risks to a patient during a long hospital stay.
0: The hospital is very good for many things. We treat disease, we stabilize patients, we save lives. However, staying in bed for too long is not good for our bodies. Back many, many decades ago, the rule was you come in the hospital, let's say someone gives birth, you're in the hospital for three weeks or something. And I can't even imagine because I was discharged as soon as I possibly could get out of the hospital with my kids. But it's true. People thought bed rest was the cure to all ailments. And the reality is, it's the opposite. People have got to get out of bed as soon as possible. Even sitting in a chair is better than nothing. Because we do know that people can develop blood clots, they lose muscle mass. One of my favorite things I say to my trainees is people lose about 5% muscle mass per day when they're lying in bed. 5% per day is It might not sound like a lot, but when you add up the number of days in the hospital, that's quite a bit. And it could make the difference between somebody who previously could sit up and turn in bed to not being able to move at all. And then it affects discharge planning. People can't go home if they can't move. They may have to go to a rehab center. So getting out of bed is important. People can be at risk for infections. Delirium we already spoke about. So, you know, the hospital is very, very good for many important things. But as soon as somebody is ready for discharge, we really try to get them home or to a rehab center.
1: Are you well accepted by your colleagues?
0: Even in our world in medicine, physicians and others may not completely understand what it is that we do and even though palliative medicine has been clearly around for the last several decades and it's been here at University of Chicago. We've been here since 2006. We've had a program. Yet there's still people that they're not quite certain or they don't quite understand or they feel that we're going to dash in and break the patient's hope and not support them in the way that they were thinking, and so this it takes a lot of work to help re-educate our colleagues, and once we, they see what we do and how we benefit and how we help support the primary team, they, then they start to get it, but it takes some time.
1: Palliative care is a team approach. Who else is on the team in addition to a physician?
0: Palliative medicine is, when it works well, when you have a, a well-staffed team, it's a physician an advanced practice provider, such as a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant, social worker, psychologist, chaplain. In the outpatient setting, you may have a massage therapist or someone doing acupuncture. You may have someone doing complementary alternative medicine. That's a very well-developed team. That is the dream team that I think all of us would love to have if we're properly resourced in our hospitals. And some hospitals do have that.
1: To some extent, we're all afraid of dying. Is death usually painful?
0: We talk about the two different pathways towards death. 90% of people will essentially go to sleep over several hours to days. We see them kind of drift off. Their pattern of breathing may change a little bit, but they're not suffering in any particular way that we can tell. And, And certainly even people in that 90%, if they need medications to help them, we will support them. The other 10% are people that might get delirious, some agitation, and those people absolutely need palliative care. They need an expert who's there, literally a bedside as much as possible to help support them. It's very frightening for family members to see their loved one have symptoms in those last hours, moments of life, and and that's why it's critical. That's why I, I really try to convince my patients when I think it's time for hospice to really, really consider involving them in their care. And the other piece why hospice is important is because it offers bereavement services for over a year after the loved one has died, and that's critical for family members that need to get through this as survivors.
1: Some people are critical of how most of medicine is focused solely on how to prolong life.
0: The current model of care that we live in right now with fee-for-service reimbursement it, it, it almost encourages people to continue to fight on and order more tests and, and procedures and things for patients, even when the clinicians feel maybe this isn't the right thing for the patient. might be the easier thing to do, right? Tell the patient, I'm just going to order another test on you, as opposed to sitting down and having the family meeting that needs to happen to really assess what the patient's values and goals are and their preferences. That, I think, is a big barrier and issue right now in in healthcare, and it it causes a lot of moral distress in some clinicians because they may feel that they're not representing the patient in the right way, but they don't actually know how to have the conversation. So there's a lot of work being done now teaching people, young professionals, how to have that conversation, how to do it in a way that would really benefit the patient, and steward them in a sense to a decision that is reflecting their values and preferences.
1: What do you tell people about what needs to happen when a patient is dying?
0: So when somebody is actively dying, there's five things that one can say to someone. And the first is thank you. And if I'm the family, thank you for being my father, thank you for being my mother. The second is please forgive me for things I may have done that caused you pain. Like almost no relationships where such things don't occur. And I forgive you for things that you did that caused me pain. The fourth is, I love you. And the fifth is, goodbye.
1: Sometimes people hang on out of concern for the living.
0: Right. My grandfather was like that. My grandfather was a farmer. He lived into his mid-90s and had a lot of frailty his last one to two years of life. Some falls, he became pretty thin, wasn't eating very much, and my family at one point had asked me, how long do you think grandpa has to live? And I stupidly gave them a number, which I learned you cannot really do that because we cannot predict, you know, despite him not eating, I thought, oh, he'll live another two weeks. And everyone was all up in arms. Oh my gosh, we have to be ready for this. And would you know that he lived two years? And I feel like You know, the idiot physician. But what it boiled down to was he did not want to leave my grandmother. And it it took the minister coming to their old 1800s farmhouse to sit with them and say, Marvin, Margaret is going to be fine. You can go now. And that night he closed his eyes and he died. So he needed permission.
1: What is the state of palliative care today?
0: It's much better than it was. I was hired here in 2001 And there was no palliative care here at all. I was hired to start a palliative care program, and we we managed to get some money to be able to hire another doctor and a nurse practitioner and grow the program from there. And back then, I remember walking into the ICUs and asking if anybody wanted a palliative care consult, and everybody turning and looking at me like, what are you talking about? What is that? This was, you know, very early 2000s. Actually, the nurses knew better than the doctors. Nurses knew what palliative care was, and the nurses still to this day are the strongest advocates for palliative care for their patients. So it depends. I think it's getting a lot better. We know that over 90% of hospitals that have over 50 beds have some access to palliative care. It's still pretty difficult in more remote areas. I know in Illinois, in the rural areas, there is very, very little palliative care still. And there's a huge need. There's still a need, but there's no palliative care. So I I think we have a lot of work left to do in in terms of educating both patients and families, but also the medical professionals. And a lot of us are doing things to educate primary care providers to help provide palliative care because we don't have enough doctors. I mean, palliative medicine, we graduate less than 350 fellows per year that are trained in palliative medicine. And that's not going to serve a purpose here for this massive country we live in.
1: Do you have any other stories that illustrate how it works?
0: Well, I have a very personal one I'm I'm willing to tell because I think this is really important. My husband was diagnosed at the age of 40 with leukemia. Very much a surprise. This was a man who was incredibly healthy, running five miles a day. He's also a physician, and he noticed he was getting short of breath. And then he noticed some bruising in his body and called his doctor and Went in and had a blood test, and he called him back and said, "Matt, you need to come to the hospital right away. You have leukemia." And that moment, even though we're doctors and we knew something was going to happen, we knew they were going we were going to have bad news because of the way he he was doing. I just had a feeling, but I remember being at work, and, our, and he called me at work, and we were very distressed, and we had to hurry up and drive home. I had to get my parents to my house. I had three very small children. Take them in the car, drop them at the hospital. We. Brought two days' worth of clothes. We had no idea. I thought you'd think that we would know as doctors. What do you do when someone has acute leukemia? No, I mean, I'm not an oncologist. I had no idea. And they told us he was going to be there for at least a month for chemo. And we were like, oh, my gosh. A month? A month in the hospital. And I haven't even told my kids yet. So he was admitted to the hospital, and it was just in time. Like, his numbers were terrible. I mean, they couldn't believe that he survived that week, but because he was 40 years old, he somehow made it through that week and was able to start chemotherapy. And then they told us the only way to cure this cancer is for him to have a stem cell transplant. And one of the first things I did, because I'm a palliative medicine physician, was ask for the palliative medicine team to help take care of my husband. I knew that I needed the support, the emotional support. So the palliative medicine team came in, and this is at a different hospital than my hospital, but, you know, they came in and helped take care of us. And that's the way it should work. And he's doing fine now. This, yes, he's doing fine now. He's going, coming up on nine years. It was a long recovery. Stem cell transplant is not an easy thing to get through, but he did, and he's not on any medication anymore. He's completely back to normal other than some chronic, you know, skin changes and eye changes, but he's doing very, very well.
1: How do you ask for palliative care?
0: I've been asked, how do I get palliative care? Like, this all sounds great. I want my dad to get palliative care. It's probably time for him. He has a serious illness or there's some issues. Well, there's there's websites. There's ways to find it. People Google, and you can find palliative care and learn more about it. It's definitely more available in more urban areas. Um in some suburban areas for sure. Rural areas, I think there's there's some challenges there. And I'm hoping with telehealth that things will get better, people will have more access remotely to palliative care resources. I know we do a lot of telehealth now with the pandemic with our palliative medicine team. And it's been p- pretty successful. Not every patient wants to be having these conversations over Zoom, but some of them do. And it's good for people that really can't travel very far to talk to a provider over the internet if they have access to telehealth.
1: Sometimes I've heard palliative care called the gift of human presence.
0: And that is something you can't teach. We try to teach about it and and I try to be better at that as an attending physician. I'm working with medical students, residents, nursing students. Just having a conversation, sitting with patients and not saying anything, it's very hard for people to do that. To be quiet and listen and give people space. But it works. you know. I've had issues where I've had to walk into a patient room, it's a very heated day, there's a lot of upset family members, the patient's upset, you know, it's not going very well. And pulling up a chair and simply sitting down and saying, I'm just here to listen. I have no other agenda, I just want to listen to you. And then people kind of stop in their tracks, they're like, really? <laughs> yeah, that's all I want to do is listen to what's going on with you today. That's it. It's critical.
1: In our next episode, we'll meet aging hero Rev. Bobby McKay and hear about her groundbreaking work with women in the ministry and the study of what she calls God Experiences.
0: This podcast was funded in part by the Dayton Foundation Del Mar Encore Fellows Initiative and the Ruth Frost Parker Center for Abundant Aging, a program of United Church Homes. Audio production and interviews were conducted by Del Mar fellow Eric Johnson.